Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. What do you hope for? What do you look forward to? Wouldn't it be nice if they were the same thing? Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Heaven with this sermon entitled Hope of Heaven, which covers 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 16 to chapter 5 verse 10 and Romans chapter 8 verses 18 to 25. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Well, good morning and uh, welcome to this second week of our series on heaven. Last week was in many ways just an introduction to the topic to begin to ask some questions. What are, what are things that we can know about heaven? We asked three questions in particular, if you'll remember. We asked, um, is there a heaven? And the answer to that, according to the scriptures, is a resounding yes. Throughout the scriptures, heaven is discussed and talked about and taught about at a certain level. Second question that we asked is, uh, okay, if there is a heaven, then how does one get there? Again, according to the scriptures, it's very clear. The answer is very straightforward. It's faith in Jesus as the one atoning sacrifice for man's sin, the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior, the one through whom is the only way. We talked about how Jesus calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. The last question we asked was, well, then what's the point of heaven? And again, the answer, if you want to summarize it in one word, is Jesus. Well, even more fully than that, God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But specifically, that second person of the Trinity, Jesus himself, where his glory is beheld. And we see, just as we sang this morning, we see him face to face. We look full in his wonderful face. And we talked about how uh, we, there's a crucial question. There's a, there's a critical question that when we ask it, it answers for us what our hope is ultimately in. And the question is that we asked last week was, if you could have heaven and all that heaven offers and all the things that we find ourselves naturally and rightfully longing for, the the no pain, the no death, the no tears, the no sorrow, the no disease, and all the fullness of life in the eternal. Would you want it if Jesus weren't there? And if we answer that question with, yeah, I would, I would still want it, then at a certain level, that's not a wrong thing because those are good things to long for, but at a certain level, we're still missing the point of heaven because he is the point of heaven. He is the one in whom all of our deepest desires and longings are met. It's only in him. It's not so much about a place that fills our longings. It's about a person who fills our longings. It's not so much about the gospel being about getting us to heaven. The gospel, ultimately, the good news of Jesus Christ is not so much about getting us to heaven, it's getting us to God to that full, whole union with him for which we were created. So that's a quick recap of where we started last week. This week, I left you hanging last week, talking a little bit about, well, what about this earth? Is it all just gonna go away? And uh, have we held at times, and maybe even now, are we holding a belief about heaven that's not biblically accurate in terms of what's ultimately gonna happen with this earth? And where's heaven going to be. I'm going to leave you hanging a little bit more. 
We're going to talk about that. I'm going to start talking about that at the end of today's sermon. And the next week, Caleb is going to dig into that at a much deeper level, pointing us in the scriptures to the new heavens and the new earth. And what can we expect? And what are the things, perhaps, that we're believing that aren't biblical about heaven? So that's where we're headed. But before we get there, the more I study, the more I realize we, there's something else we have to talk about before we talk about that. And that something is this. We have to talk about how the hope of heaven for the Christian, for the person who has believed upon Jesus, for the person who has staked their life on Christ through faith in him, we have to talk about why the hope of heaven impacts the way we live right now. This is a lot of what the New Testament and the Apostle Paul in particular is trying to get the early church to understand that waiting on heaven, if you will, waiting on the return of Christ is not just something that the believers to do in such a way that things in this life don't matter, that we just sit around and do nothing and wait, or that the things that we do in this life don't have meaning beyond the grave, because they do. But where I want to mainly focus is this, because the Bible talks a lot about it is how does the hope of heaven help us grieve? How does the hope of heaven help us suffer? How do we endure suffering and grief and pain and sorrow the way that God would intend us to because of what is to come? Because of future glory. There have been a couple times in my life that I have been absolutely convinced that I was gonna die. Now, I think I've shared with you all before, I think even a couple of times, that there are two things about me that I'm recovering from. One is that I'm a recovering people-pleasing addict. The other is that I'm a recovering hypochondriac. Now, leading a church through a pandemic, social unrest, and political unrest will absolutely kill the first one. It will take away the people-pleasing because you can't do it. It's, it's impossible. The second one, God began to work on many years ago, and I'm in a much better place now than I used to be, but there were seasons in my life where I was absolutely convinced that I was gonna die. I'd started experiencing some strange symptom, and the next thing I know, I'm Googling my symptoms. Don't ever do that, it's the worst thing you can do. And I would Google my symptoms, and what would come up immediately was worst case scenario, and I would buy it hook, line, and sinker and convince myself that that was what was happening. So many years ago, I wake up in the middle of the night and I tell Rachel, you gotta take me to the hospital. I'm, I'm having a heart attack. My wife in her infinite wisdom looks at me and she says, babe, I love you, you're not having a heart attack. It's not because she's cruel, it's because she's way wiser than I am. But I was convinced, I was absolutely convinced that I had something going on in my body that was slowly killing me. Now here's what happened, because I was convinced of that, and the more that I began to experience the symptoms that, that were happening with, uh, within my body, the more anxious I became, and the more it perpetuated, and the more the mind began to control my body in such a way to where, uh, slowly but surely, I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't interact with others. If you know me, you know something's really wrong when I'm not wanting to get out of the house and engage with others. I couldn't get out of the bed, I was wallowing in the fear of what was to come. Eventually, it leads me to a place where I'm so desperate, I finally go to the doctor and get all these tests run. And when the doctor finally says to me, you do not fear what you think you have, you do not have what you fear you have. You're fine, all the tests are normal, you're healthy, it was like a switch flipped. 
And within a matter of hours, my appetite came back and I slept great that night and I began to be healthy again. Here's the point. The point is our hopes and or our fears dictate how we live today. If you're deeply afraid of something, that's gonna impact how you live right now. If you're deeply hopeful in something that is to come, that, is gonna, that, is, that you're convinced is going to be incredible, then you live in light of that hope. Our hope for the Christian, our hope in future glory, in the presence of Christ, in this place that the Bible calls heaven, determines in so many ways how we live today, specifically as we'll focus this morning, and how we grieve, how we suffer, and how we endure what this life often brings to us. So let's read a passage of scripture. There were so many different places that I could have gone because the Bible talks a lot about this, talks a lot about the hope of heaven as it pertains to life now. Now, let me give you one more disclaimer, one more explanation. I mentioned this last week. I want to mention it again. When the Bible talks about the hope of heaven, it's not the hope that we commonly uh, use the way we use hope now in the English language. We, we typically use it as wishful thinking. I hope that I get that job. I hope that things work out well. I hope that whatever, you know, we get to go to the water park this weekend, whatever it may be. There's this wishful thinking. When the Bible talks about hope, it's, it's not wishful thinking. It's assured reality based on the work of Jesus. So there's this hope that is placed in the future reality that's not wishful thinking, but rather because this will happen, it impacts me today. There's a joy that I can possess today in the midst of whatever God has for me, good or bad, because of the hope, this living hope of what is to come. So let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verse 16. I'm going to read from verse 16 through chapter 5, verse 10. I want you to follow along with me. It says this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight." Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Let me pray for us. Father, would you bless the reading and the teaching of your word? 
Would you fill our hearts with your spirit, giving us uh, wisdom to discern? And Lord, would you do a work in us that only you can do as you, O Holy Spirit, instruct us and shape us and transform us this morning? We give this time to you for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to brace yourselves for what you're about to hear. I have 10 points this morning from this passage. We'll get out, I'm thinking around two, maybe three. You're thinking, my goodness, Jeff, it takes you long enough to get three points on a normal Sunday. What is this gonna be like? Uh, There's 10 things in this passage that I wanna hit on. Most of them I'm just gonna mention with maybe a quick little sentence or two, and then a couple of them, two or three of them, I'm gonna dig in and camp out in a little bit longer. But there's a question I wanna ask this week. I asked three questions last week. I wanna ask one question this week. And the question is simply this. What are the marks of a hope-filled, heavenly-minded Christian? According to this passage, according to what Paul lays out for us through the power of the Holy Spirit within him, what is it that marks a Christian who is filled with hope centered on what is to come, on heaven and our future glory with Christ? And so 10 things I wanna hit on. First one is this. Someone who's marked as a hope-filled, heavenly-minded Christian is full, has a full and courageous heart. You'll see it right there in the text, right at the very beginning, verse 16 of chapter four. So we do not lose heart. Down in chapter five, verse six, he says this. So we are always of good courage. Now the context of this is that Paul is just walking through a lot of the hardship that we can expect as Christians in this broken world Uh, that is centered around anything and everything but Jesus. But then he comes behind that and he says, but listen, we don't lose heart. Now he's mimicking his savior here, who if you'll remember from last week, we looked at this passage. Where in John uh, chapter 15, 16, I can't remember exactly uh, which one we started in, but there's this part where Jesus says to his disciples on the night before he was crucified, on Thursday night before Friday, he says to them, Do not let your hearts be troubled. And here's the why. If you'll remember, Jesus comes right behind that and says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Why? Because I'm going somewhere. I'm going somewhere to prepare a place for you so that you may come and be with me. So why is our heart not troubled? In the midst of all the hardship, Jesus, in that conversation with the disciples in the Gospel of John, had just told them, hey, in this world, you'll have tribulation. You'll struggle. There'll be all kinds of pain and hardship, but don't lose heart. Why? Fix your hope on what is to come. Paul is saying the same thing, so we do not lose heart. There's more I'll say about this as we get down to the fifth thing that I'm gonna give you where we'll circle back around to this reality. For now, let me just say this. When we're Christians with full, courageous hearts, it means this. It means that the maturing Christian fears death less. The maturing Christian fears death less. The more we walk with Jesus, the more death loses its sting. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. The second thing, an awareness, an awareness of the inward sanctifying work of God. Look at verse 16 of chapter four. He continues, Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. 
So there's this reality that I don't have to convince you of. We know it, we feel it, we see it every day that we outwardly are indeed wasting away. It doesn't matter how much we work out. It doesn't matter how much that we eat healthy. Those things help, but they're only putting off the inevitable. Ecclesiastes 9, Solomon talks about this. We're going to die, the righteous, the unrighteous. All of our end is the same. It's going to happen. There was a doctor friend of mine when we lived in Tuscaloosa who would say often, and wow, this was encouraging, he would say all the time, hey, we're all dying, every single one of us, regardless of your age, even five-year-olds. You're like, wow, dude, chill out. But it's true. We're all moving towards that reality. So outwardly, we're wasting away. But inwardly, for the Christian, for the one who has been renewed, remember the language that Jesus used with Nicodemus in John chapter three, that if you want to be with me, if you want to know me, then you must be born again into newness of life. That 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that comes up in this chapter later, where he says that if we are in Christ, we are new creations. So what does that mean? It means that he has now put his spirit within us upon belief in Jesus. When we trust Christ by faith with our lives, the Holy Spirit of God comes and dwells with us. And what is he doing? He's doing a renewing work in us that is a foreshadowing of the holistic renewing work of God that will ultimately be not only inward, but outward as well. But for now, as the kingdom comes within us, there is a renewing work. Now the Bible calls this renewing work sanctification. Let me give you a quick definition of sanctification. You can sum it up by saying this. It's the process of God working in us to transform us more and more into his image and into his likeness until we are with him in heaven. I'll read it one more time. The process of God working in us to transform us more and more into his image and into his likeness until we are with him in heaven. So Paul is reminding us, one of the reasons that we don't lose heart is because of the work that God is doing in us, the sanctifying, holy work of God inside the people of God, individually and corporately. And even in times when we are convinced that God is not working anymore in us, he is. He is more committed to your sanctification than you and I ever will be. He is always at work doing a renewing work, preparing us for that day of redemption. And even when we feel like I could not be struggling more than I am, if you are in Christ, the renewing work is being done. So the maturing Christian fears death less and also is aware, so aware of the constant inward sanctifying work of God. I'm gonna give you number three and number four together because I'm gonna just kind of talk about these two things um, at once here. So the third thing, what are the marks of a hope-filled, heavenly-minded Christian? Third, a proper perspective on fleeting affliction and eternal glory. A proper perspective on, a, on fleeting affliction and eternal glory. Fourth, along with that, a fixed gaze on the unseen. Now, these two are the real meat of what Paul is wanting the Corinthian readers and ultimately us to get. The fleeting nature of, of the affliction of this world and the ability through Christ within us to fix our eyes, the eyes of faith, the eyes of our heart on what is unseen. Listen to what he says, verse 17. 
For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or or temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He goes on later in the text to say that again. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Now, what he's talking about here, when he says these slight and momentary afflictions, he's talking about all of life on this earth before we, before we go to heaven. Now, many of us would say, wow, that doesn't feel, this life and all that I've endured so far does not feel slight and momentary. It feels very heavy and it feels long. We've walked through some incredibly difficult things. One of the hardest parts of being a pastor is walking with people towards death. One of the great blessings of being a pastor is walking with people towards death. Those who have staked their hope in the life to come and have embraced the reality that indeed This life is truly slight and momentary. That life is, as the scripture says, a vapor. That as Psalm 90 says, we are to number our days. It is so very brief. But it doesn't mean it's not hard. Let me illustrate this. I've used this illustration before, but I think it illustrates the point well of how we can begin to think about this from God's perspective, because from God's perspective, where in Psalm 90, again, it says that a thousand years are like a day to the Lord, the eternal significance of what happens in eternity is actually forever and ever and ever and ever and is slight and momentary this life compare in comparison. So let me give it to you like this. My kids are older now. Every Sunday, they know I'm gonna bring them up in some capacity, I apologize. They're 18, 14, 12, and nine. We are, praise God, hallelujah, chorus, no longer dealing with child seats. With, with uh, what, did I even say the right word? Child seats, is that right? What, what is it called? Car seats, there we go, thank you. I don't even, I just, it was so traumatic, I totally just tuned it out. <laughs> I don't even know what to call them anymore. I burned them after we were finished with them, no. Um, but I have this memory, I have vivid memories of when my kids were babies, of trying to get them to go in the car seats and how much they fought against it. Kicking, screaming, shrieks of terror, kicking me in the chest while I'm trying to buckle them in. Now, there were times where uh, I was taking them somewhere they didn't wanna go. Maybe the doctor's office, dentist, whatever. Sorry, doctors and dentists, but you know. But there were other times. There were other times where if they could just understand me, what I so desperately wanted them to get is that I'm taking you to the park. I'm taking you to the swimming pool. I'm taking you to a play date. I'm taking you somewhere that you are absolutely going to love. And if you had that understanding, if you had that viewpoint, if you had that perspective, then you would sit way more patiently in what I'm doing with you now. But a little child, especially a little child before they can speak and understand, they don't get that. All they see is the momentary affliction. They see the confusion of the constraints. 
And they go, what in the world are you, my daddy, who I thought loved me, doing to me? What in the world are you up to? But I have a knowledge, I have an awareness of the plan of the father that I so deeply want my children to understand, to say, trust me. I know you don't understand what's happening now, but where I'm taking you will be beyond anything that you're experiencing right now. In a sense, in the earthly sense, I am storing up for you not eternal glories, but coming glories that will make what you're enduring now worth it. In fact, don't miss this. The only way you get to the pool is if you get in the chair. That's the only way. There is no other way. Do you trust me? Now, I don't say, I don't use that illustration in a, in a very, you know, kind of flippant way because that's hard. That's incredibly hard. I know many of your stories and we have walked through incredibly difficult things. Uh, loss of loved ones, fathers, mothers, children, sisters, brothers, people that we dearly love and everything within us says this is not slight and momentary. It's not. But when we pull out of the moment and we gaze upon the unseen and more specifically we gaze upon the heart and the character of our father we trust him we sit in the confusion of the constraints because we know where he's taking us and we know that the only way to get to where he's taking us in terms of what we're going to experience has to be experienced in the slight and the momentary now. Oftentimes when we're going through really hard things, everything within us, because it's human nature, everything within us wants to shake our fist at God and say, God, you need to prove to me, now would be a great time that you would prove to me in a new way that you love me, that you're there for me, that you're with me, And God's response oftentimes, and we see this biblically, oftentimes God says, well, if I gave you the proof that you wanted, it would thwart the very purposes that I'm accomplishing in your life. Let me give an example with Jesus himself. I want you to imagine and remember Jesus on the cross. He's in agony because the sin of the world is being placed upon him. And that's being manifested in every way physically as he's ripped apart, but inwardly as well as the father turns his face away. And meanwhile, while that's happening, there's all these spectators at the foot of the cross who are mocking him. And one of the things they're mocking him with is that if you really are the son of God, then you will come down off the cross and save us all. For who, what kind of savior can't even save himself? Now, in that moment, now listen, if you and I were there, we'd probably be those people at the cross, just, just so we know, to properly place ourselves in the context. We'd be the ones, because it's so natural, if you really are the savior of the world, then you can't overcome a cross. You need to prove that you are who you say you are. Otherwise, I don't trust you. 
Now, if Jesus had come down off the cross, if the proof that they desired had been given in that moment, then the purposes of God for our salvation would be thwarted. And God tells us over and over again that we are a people who are to share in his sufferings in such a way to where in the moment we cry out for proof and God says, if I give you the proof that you want, the purposes that I'm accomplishing in you for all of eternity will not come to fruition. Do you trust me? I'm gonna put you in some confusion and in constraint, not because I don't love you. If you doubt that, look at the cross but because I'm doing something that is far beyond anything that you can imagine. Our slight and momentary afflictions are gaining for us an eternal weight of glory that far surpasses them all. So what do we, what do we fixate on? Do we fixate on our circumstances and then define God through them? Or do we fixate on God who is unseen in the, in the moment and define our circumstances through him? This is hard. Why? Because fixing on the seen is so much easier. It's tangible. To fix on the unseen takes discipline, takes faith. Every morning my heart wakes up and it is not in line with the Lord. Every morning I'm battling the sin nature and every morning I'm crying out to God to do things that he has purposed in all of eternity not to do yet for me. And so every morning... If I get with him alone, what inevitably happens every time is he does this. He aligns my heart with his and he gives me the ability that I don't have through the spirit of Christ in me to fix my eyes on what is not seen. Our deepest craving, Scotty Smith says, our deepest craving and most intense longings will all find their fulfillment in the life to come. Never let our pain outweigh our praise. Fifth, what are marks of a hope-filled, heavenly-minded Christian? A respect of death, but not a fear of it. This is kind of where I started us. I wanna circle back around to Chapter five, verse one, Paul says this. He says, for we know that if the tent, that's our body, which is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We know that. We know that if this is destroyed, so be it. Paul says this, you can, you can destroy the body, but you cannot destroy the soul. One of the things that I would encourage you to do, in addition to being devoted to the word of God, that is first and foremost, read it, know it, study it, immerse yourselves in it, be people of the book. In addition to that, if you're gonna read something else on the consistent, then let it be church history. Let it be Christian history. One of the things that I've learned so much about, and this is not in a, in a condemning way, it's just been brought to the surface uh, to see so clearly that so much of this past 18 months, part of the struggle that's going on is that Christians are convinced that things are happening that have never happened before, and that's simply not true. Because we don't know Christian history. We don't know the history of the church. And so we start using words like unprecedented. And we go, no, no, no. It's not unprecedented. The church has always been battling, 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 always. 
So if we know our history of the church coupled with the, the truth of God's word, I promise you this. I don't promise and guarantee things very often, but I will guarantee you that if you'll do that, if you'll, you'll immerse yourself in the word and then supplement it with reading church history, you're gonna be amazed at how your perspective changes in the current. You're gonna be amazed at what God does in the ability to not freak out right now and to not fear because there is truly nothing new under the sun. And I love the stories, they're hard to read, but I love the stories of the many Christians who have gone before us, who have said, destroy the body. It's okay. If you're gonna kill me because of my faith in Jesus, then so be it, because you're not robbing me of life. Paul mocks death in 1 Corinthians 15. He mocks it. He says, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Why? Because there is one, praise be to God, who has come and has been victorious over the grave, and now he is in me. So that means I am victorious over the grave, and there is no defeat in death. So if you want to kill the body, if the tent goes away, that's okay. Because there is a glory to come. There is a fear of death that has consumed Christians in this day and age that is not biblical. And we have to write that. We have to get ourselves in a mindset with Paul, with Jesus, with the early church, and with the church through the ages that says, I will respect death. I will not foolishly, foolishly put myself in the in harm's way, I will not live like a fool, but I am not afraid of what man can do to the body. Sixth, a healthy groaning and a longing for heaven. We talked about this last week, so I won't reread the verses again, but I just wanna reiterate I want you to notice when you reread this passage and you see that healthy longing for heaven that Paul keeps talking about, this groaning, this longing to be in our heavenly home, where is the focus of the longing? Who is the focus of the groaning? It's Jesus. To be with the Lord. Because as those who know him in part now, we long for the day not just to be in a place that is paradise, but to be united fully with the person who is paradise. The one who fills our every longing. Seven, an unshakable assurance through the spirit of God within us. Chapter five, verse five says this. He who is prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. I'll talk more about this in two weeks. We'll talk about the assurance of heaven. But there is a way, the scriptures speak so specifically to this. We can know, we can know without a doubt that's where we're going. And it has nothing to do, the reason we can know it is because it has nothing to do with us. If it were based on me and my ability to get there, then I would have zero confidence. But since it's not based on me, since the requirements were met by the perfect one, Jesus, 
attributed to me as if it were my own, then I have 100% full confidence that I will be in glory because he has done it. He's the one who's finished the work. So I have assurance, why? Not only because he's finished the work, but because, again, he's put his spirit within me. And who is the spirit? According to this verse, the guarantee. The guarantee of what? The guarantee of heaven for the believer. Eight, a clear understanding of our purpose, whether here or in heaven. Paul goes on to say that whether we're in the body away from the Lord or whether we're with the Lord and away from the body, either way, our aim is the same. The purpose of our existence in this life and in for all of eternity is him. He is the aim. Uh, this is where the Westminster Divines tried to help us understand this from the very beginning of the Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? What is our purpose? To glorify God and enjoy him when? Forever. He is the point of this life and he is the point of the life to come. He is the focus, he is the centrality, he is the preeminent one, he is the one in whom we will glory for all of eternity. And as John Piper has famously said, we are most satisfied in him when he is most glorified in us. We long for satisfaction, we long for fulfillment, but we look for it in all the other glories of this world when Jesus, the preeminent one, the glorious one, is the only one who truly satisfies. Nine, the expectation of judgment. The hope-filled, heavenly-minded Christian expects and even anticipates judgment. Verse 10 of chapter five, he says this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And you go, well, hold on a second. Jeff, didn't you just say it has nothing to do with what I do? Yes, but then doesn't verse 10 say, well, based on what I do, I'll stand and judge before God in judgment? Yes. Okay, you gotta help me out here. What's going on? Here's what's going on. There's two judgments that the Bible talks about. The first judgment you'll read about in Revelation 20. And it's the great white throne judgment of Christ. And that's the judgment that the Bible makes very clear is the, separa the separating of the sheep and the goats. The saved, those who have believed upon Jesus, and the lost, those who have rejected him. And those who have been saved and renewed in Christ, recreated, born again in him, will be ushered. Their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. They will be ushered into the presence of God for all of eternity. Those who have rejected that will be ushered into the lake of fire, into the place of eternal torment that the Bible calls hell. The Bible makes this incredibly clear. This is not just something that church has made up over the years. It's from Straight from the word of God. That's the first judgment. But the second judgment is just for the believer. Those who've been ushered into the presence of God will stand before Jesus in what is called in this verse, the Greek word is bema, B-E-M-A, the bema seat, where it's a type of judgment not separating life from death, not eternal punishment versus eternal paradise, but separating the good things you did on this earth that will last forever and those that will not. In the life of a believer, what we do matters and there will be rewards in heaven. Jesus talked about this. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. He talked about this. What will this look like? I'll tell you, I don't know. It's a mystery. 
What's it going to look like for all the glory to be on Jesus in heaven? Because that's undoubtedly what the Bible shows us. But that at the same time, those things that we've done through the power of the Spirit in us to build his kingdom here will last forever. And we will be rewarded for it. And if you're worried about, oh goodness, man, I'm going to stand. There's not going to be anything to reward. I'm going to stand before Jesus and be embarrassed. At some level, yeah, that's all of us. But Herman Bavink actually has this beautiful illustration that just to summarize it quickly is simply this. When you're playing a song, when a master musician is playing a song, there are bold, loud crescendo notes and there are soft, subtle notes. But when brought together into the song, they all matter. And it's a glorious symphony when the notes are played together. That's how it's gonna be at some level when we're standing before the Lord and he's rewarding us for what we've done. Some of us will be the loud crescendo notes. Others of us will be the soft, subtle notes, but we will together be united with each other under the union of Christ and it will be a beautiful symphony and none of us will care. None of us will go, you're the loud note. I wish I were you. And the loud notes won't look at the subtle notes and go, wow, don't you wish you'd have done more? Together, we will sing a song of hallelujah because the praise is to him. Lastly, Romans 8. I'm gonna go outside of this text to give you the last point. The last point is this. There's something better to come. The glorious will become even more glorious. Listen to Romans 8. Listen to what what Paul says about this. He starts out, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's what he's just told us in 2 Corinthians 4. So we've already talked about that, the glory, the beauty of what's to come. But listen to this, verse 19. Pay attention, this is important. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, because of man, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Listen, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. So we're talking about the hope of heaven in this hope, the consummation of all things, the fullness of all things in the new heavens and new earth. That's why we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. Paul keeps talking about that. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. To put it in the illustration that I had earlier, if we hope for the park that we know we're going to, we'll sit in the car seat and we'll wait for it with patience. But what is the hope? What is it that's to come? Here's where I wanna leave you for next week and then Caleb will dive in on this topic. There's two already not yets. We're in the first one now. And it's this already, not yet. This is the language we use often to say, look, the kingdom of God has already come. It came with Jesus and the kingdom of God dwells within individuals now collectively as the body 
of, of Christ, the church, but there will be a day when the kingdom of God comes in full, meaning it won't just be a spiritual reality, it'll be a physical reality, and it is becoming that in part now, but it'll be that way in full. So already, but not yet. But did you know that heaven as it exists now, the current state of heaven is an already not yet as well. In Revelation, we get this little bit of a window into the saints gathered around the throne of God. And what they're saying is this. They're saying and singing that there's a day coming that they're longing for. So they're still longing in heaven. What are they longing for? They're longing for Jesus to return and for him to renew not just our hearts, not just the spiritual realities of who we are, but to renew all things. Because what we begin to understand that the Bible teaches from Genesis to Revelation is that God's intention was never, this is incredibly important, God's intention was never to do a saving work that would take man ultimately up there. God's intention from the very beginning was to create a reality where he has image bearers filling the, filling the earth, centered on his glory while he dwells with them down here. It's what he did in Eden. He creates man and woman. Where does he dwell with them? He walks with them in the garden. Once we screw that up with sin, what does he do? He leads the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Why? Just so that he can show, watch this, I can split water? No, to bring them into a land. Why? So that he can dwell with them in the tabernacle. Why does he have the ornate temple built? So that the glory of the temple would speak to the glory of the Lord as he dwells with his people. Who is Jesus? Jesus is coming as the final temple of God to come and make a way that as we enter through him, he brings God and heaven to earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where does the Bible story end? What picture does John give us? He gives us a picture that we'll dive into next week of a new heavens and a new earth that is redeemed in all of the spiritual realities, but all of the physical realities as well, that all things are made new. So when we talk about the hope of heaven, we're not just talking about the disembodied reality that it is now. And believe me, what our loved ones are experiencing in heaven right now is amazing. They're not disappointed. But what is to come when Jesus returns will be beyond anything we could ever begin to fathom. That's our hope. And we wait for it with patience. Father, thank you. Thank you for what you teach us about heaven. Thank you for what you reveal to us about yourself. And thank you for the ways in which you stir our hearts to be filled with hope now in what's to come. We thank you that the greatest antidote to current affliction is fixating on future glory. Would you teach us that? Would you remind us that that's true? Well, we wanna sing to you now. We wanna sing to you about heaven. Would you stir our hearts as only you can? And would you give us a taste, even just a little bit of a taste right now of what heaven's gonna be like as we sing for the glory of Christ 
for all of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.